Now this week, um, I hope you were encouraged from the message last week to uplift you in your faith, that you maybe pondered things um, about the purpose of prayer, your identity in Christ, the effectiveness of the gospel message, and the need for believers to go out and spread the gospel message. I hope you were able to reflect um, what it means to share, what it means to invest in discipling. And this morning I want to ask a question along those lines. And for one of us, it's a pretty easy answer. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they come to faith right then and there? Maybe it's the first time that you've done it. Maybe it's 20 years worth of sharing the gospel message and they finally come to Christ. How do you feel in that moment? You know, is it exciting? Are you celebrating? Are you joyful? You know, for sometimes it's you've prayed so much for somebody who's been so closed, now you have an open door and they have a heart and they want to hear the gospel message. Even that is a praise. And you're celebrating and you're rejoicing with those moments. And you can be built up in the spirit in your confidence in your faith. But what happens next? Person comes to the Lord, now what? Is there a plan in place? Do you know how to disciple someone? You've worked so hard with this person. You've prayed for so long for this person to come to Christ. Now that they've actually come to Christ, what's your next steps? There have been many, as I call it, drive-by evangelisms in the past. Big conferences where people by the hundreds are coming to Christ. And then the conference packs up and they take off and they might say, just get plugged into a local church, whatever that means to a new believer. You know, when we pray so hard for people to come to know the Lord Jesus, we don't just hand them off to someone else. We continue to walk alongside. We continue to make sure that they have a Bible. We continue to answer questions. We continue to be a part of their life. So many times when people are passed off to me just because I'm the pastor, I have zero connection with that person. You're the one that's prayed for 20 years. You're the one that's shared the gospel. You're the one that they, they see as a testimony of faith. They need you to continue to walk alongside. So when we think about this type of attitude when it comes to discipling, we want to understand how our role plays in a part of their growth. Now, sure, getting plugged into a church is important. Different programs like Bible studies, Sunday schools, they all play a role in that growth. But we need that community. We need that fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ who are plugged into the vine to help bring somebody along. As we read our next section in the book of Colossians today, we're going to be looking at what it means to be drawn in closer to the Father and the importance of that. So if you have your Bibles, I will invite you to stand as you're able as we read verses 9 through 14 today. Mm-hmm. 
beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths. Help us to apply what we see here. Help us to learn from one another, especially of those that have gone before us, the testimonies of so many. Lord, help us to be drawn closer to you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so again, even though we're just still in the beginning parts of chapter one, I hope that you are continuing to see how rich this book is, uh, perhaps spending some more time studying through this book, and we can see the importance of the gospel message being expressed. Again, Paul takes everything back to Christ. You know, this, this section, verse nine through verse 20, is another one of those, it's all one sentence type of things that we talked about last week. So again, it unifies a lot of the thoughts that are in this section. And Paul is praying for their full perception, their full understanding of God's will so that they might glorify him with their conduct. It's kind of a summary of this main thrust of the book of Colossians. But this morning, I want to break down this prayer a bit and talk about a few different things. You know, Paul is praying for the early church. Again, the importance of prayer. And we see the we there in verse 9. So it's very similar to, to verse 4 up above when he says we, multiple people are praying for this church. And they are praying constantly. Now, this is not a every waking moment I'm on my knees, my hands are folded, my eyes are closed, bowed before the Lord, praying. Instead, this is a mindfulness of these early churches where they're constantly on their minds, on, on the tips of their tongues, being lifted in prayer for the Father. You know, when we look at this request and we look at what he says that follows it, I think that we can understand why this is that he says that they are constantly praying. You know, he is asking that they be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now this is a general knowledge, this is a special knowledge or a specific knowledge. It is something that they are to seek daily, constantly. So again, we can make the connection of why he is praying in a constant way because it is a constant thing to seek the will of God. And he specifies this by saying, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, this is a singular thought using two words here to express that they would have good discernment applying the knowledge of the will of God in their lives. How good are you at doing that? How good is your discernment concerning the will of God? I think it's an area that we all kind of lack in at times. 
It's an area that we, we seek, especially in moments of hardship, especially in moments of uncertainty, where we're seeking a little extra, perhaps. But again, I think this goes why, back to why Paul is making this a daily request, a, a constance of prayer. Now, to be full of the knowledge here would be to be full of the knowledge of Christ, of God, of, of, of the gospel message. And the fact that he is asking for this is also going to combat the Gnostic teachings. Again, if you remember in the intro, I said with Gnosticism, you had terms like knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Those were three favorite terms of the Gnostic teachings. And Paul is using these terms that they would use and taking it back to Christ. You know, instead of seeking knowledge for knowledge's sakes, he's saying, seek the knowledge of God's will. Instead of having wisdom, have spiritual wisdom. Instead of having understanding, understand what God has done. So he's taking everything back to Christ. Six different times in the book of Colossians, he, he speaks about wisdom in this letter. So it underlines the importance. You see, the, the antidote, if you will, to false teaching, the antidote to heresy is wisdom. It's a deeper, richer knowledge of the truth in Christ. The false teachers in Colossae here, they're evidently, they're promoting this deeper knowledge. They're promoting this thing that was attained only by the privileged few namely themselves and their followers. They knew God's will. So you need to follow them. God's will is. And I want you to wrestle with that statement. See, he has a plan for the whole universe. He has a plan for our individual lives discerning God's will, understanding that is our job. And that's not necessarily an easy task because we have many competing voices. Again, this constancy of prayer on Paul's behalf is because he understands the voices that are going to be coming in, the attacks that will come daily upon these people and all believers. His prayer, our goal, is to be discerning his words over our own thoughts, over our own feelings of what is right or wrong. And what we, what we need to be doing is be drawing closer to him in those times. But again, many times competing, competing voices will come in. Our will versus God's will. Selfish pride versus humble obedience. Walking in the light, stumbling in the darkness. And Paul is pushing for the people to continually press in to know God's will as this battle with the darkness and the light in order to walk worthily enters in. But you know, as, as we're walking in the light, his will will have us walking worthily. Our will will have us walking in the darkness, away from Christ. And when we think about light and darkness, we also have to understand the, the truth of the gospel message that the darkness is cast out by the light, that Jesus defeated the darkness by dying on the cross. And we are brought into the light. We then need to be obediently walking in that light, throwing off the old self, putting on the new. Again, not something that is easy. 
But you know, when we dive into the topic of God's will, that tends to be a fun topic. One that can bring about many arguments. One that can quench the spirit. One that can cause people to stumble and have barriers to faith. And what I want to mention for this segment is not to treat the understanding of God's will flippantly or in a trite way, but rather understanding this aspect of not ceasing in prayer for them to understand the will of God. See, we need to struggle in prayer, in reading the scriptures, in meditating over them, pondering them, reflecting, waiting on the Lord, listening for his answer, not rushing to the first possible outcomes. And graciously, over time, the Lord will allow us into his will, but in his timeline and not our own. Now, when we're talking about God's will, there are a few examples in Scripture that explicitly tell us what God's will is. You have two of them in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then it goes on to talk about sexual immorality, sexual purity. A little bit later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, if you recall, we've talked about that passage before, and there's, you know, debate on if it's just those three things or even the stuff preceding that in 1 Thessalonians 5 that is considered the will of God for you. Um, I just put those three things in. You can continue to study that as you wish. You also have different commands found in Scripture that could be considered God's wills. Things such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as yourself. Found in Matthew 22. You know, we need to be careful how we understand some of these commands, though. That we're not lifting one of them up over the other. You know, the Pharisees were big into doing those types of things. Jesus addressed a lot of that in the Sermon on the Mount, where he addressed the heart issues behind some of those laws that were written in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and and things that were given to people in the Old Testament times. But what I see a lot of in Scripture when it talks about the will of God is this desire to do the will of God. Jesus, in John chapter 7, verse 16 through 18, says this. And Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Psalm 143, verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs, you will see many times where the author is requesting uh, for the Lord to teach him his will, to teach him his laws, to write their laws, his laws on their hearts. This week, spend some time in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. It's a larger section, but just spend some time reading through that. 
trying to understand how to, to press in to the Father. Back to the book of John in chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So we see a lot of times action, partaking in the will of God, coming alongside of what God desires. And that's another thing that we see often in Scripture, where God says, I don't desire your sacrifices, I desire mercy. I don't desire your sacrifices, I desire an obedient heart, a humble, contrite heart. Going to just blast you with passages here. Psalm 51, verse 17. Matthew 12, verse 17. Matthew 9, verse 13. Hosea 6.6, 6. 1 Samuel 15.22, Micah 6.6-8, 6, 6 Isaiah 1.11, and so many more around this topic. Again, articulation is important. And what I want to stress from what we see in Scripture is this hunger, this desire to accomplish the will of God, to to press in and to know the will of God with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because there is this easy believism type of thing in the church or in people's walks that just flippantly says it's God's will. It's a superficial way to answer everything that they don't understand. Usually it's after the fact of when something bad happens that we don't have anything else to say. Well, it must be God's will. It's dangerous to flippantly talk about God's will because you're treating God more like fate than you are the king of the universe. I have some examples I want to share with you today. Hypothetical in most instances. In most instances. Well, it must have been a God's will that I divorced my wife and married this other woman because I'm so much happier. It's a mindset and a teaching that everything happens must be God's will. And it's a dangerous recipe for people to just put a rubber stamp on their own will and say that it's God's will. That it's really what I want to do and I want God to approve it. So I'm just going to say it's God's will because I've already done it and it's unchanged. When we're trying to look for the approval of our own will, we find ourselves not actually seeking God's will. Or not pressing in to the Father. And again, I'm getting, trying to get us to confront this flippant attitude of treating God's will as something that is just there. Where we just go through life and what will be, will be. It's a very fatalistic attitude. A very fatalistic approach to the Father. People can take the flippant use of this phrase and ultimately ask questions and come back to God as the root cause, as being blameworthy of the evils that happen in my life. Because if everything is God's will, then he did this to me. He's at fault. 
It's an attitude that I hear a lot from non-believers as a barrier to faith, especially when they've lost someone close to them, where they blame God instead of pressing into the Father. Let me give you, again, some absurd examples. I'm going to stress that word absurd. Of this mentality that we can flippantly use God's will. What if I were to get up here on a Sunday? And I've wanted to do this in the past, and I haven't just because I don't want to cause people to stumble. But what if I got up here and I just blatantly said some blasphemy, some heretical thing, Christ isn't fully human, Christ isn't fully God, or whatever it might be. Is that still God's will? I mean, if I, if I said it, it must be God's will because he wouldn't have me say anything otherwise, right? Again, an absurd use of logic. Let me give you a healthy example. When I felt the calling to move to more of a, a senior pastor role in, in ministry, Elaine and I prayed for over a year. We prayed, we read scripture, we consulted with other Christians that we brought into the conversation and they joined us in that conversation. We waited, we pondered, we listened. There were different circumstances that happened, there were different openings that happened in a more local setting and we pursued those with humility. As both of those doors closed, we both got the sense that it was God's will that we move out of state, knowing how hard that decision would be. And we were placed in this, this position of, do we follow where the Lord is leading us? Or do we continue to try it, to work it out in our own strength and make things work in places where we knew God was calling us away from? Now, sometimes as we continue to walk down those types of paths and we don't see the end, you're going to face trials, you're going to face hardships, you're going to face moments of grieving that you thought, you know what, I never expected this to happen. Am I still in God's will? You know, I've prayed for this person for 30 years and they're still not receiving the gospel. They're not, they're not receiving Christ. Am I doing something wrong? Have I, have I messed up? Am I not in God's will? You know, for those moments when we're still walking down that path and we don't see that outcome, you can look back and you can see the hand of God in a lot of instances. You might not have all of the answers. You know, this type of feeling often comes up with death. Why did that person have to die? I don't understand. And you won't understand all of it until further down the road. But as you continue to walk faithfully with the Lord and people see how you continually point people to Christ and people see how you are following him even in pain, even in hardships, even through the trials, they can see that faith and that speaks the gospel to them. That, that begins to take down barriers. That begins to take down stumbling blocks in their life. And they begin to ask different questions. 
through hardships and trials, we have the opportunity, I think, a greater opportunity to share the gospel than in times of comfort. Because in times of comfort, it might not even be on our mind. But as we're going through the fire, it's kind of like we're forced to be thinking about God, to th- be thinking about our faith, to wrestle with hard things that, you know, it's just, it's over there. It's, yeah, it's a big thing in theology, but, you know, I, you know whatever. But when you're in those moments, you're able to lean and press into the Father in stronger ways. And that's hard because a lot of times we like to control where we walk. We like to control what our faith looks like. When we don't see the results that we've prayed for, we could think about giving up. We could think about being frustrated because we were expecting something different. But when we look back and we can see the hand of God moving, we can see that we walked in a way that was worthy of the Lord because there was fruit. As you press in, you continue to walk in a way that's worthy, even if you don't understand during that time. You put your trust in the Lord and what he says, that he will work it out for his good pleasure, that he will be glorified. Philippians 2.13. You know, how many times as, you know, quote-unquote good Christians, do we think, of course, we're not following anything heretical, we're not following anything false. We have the right positions. Everybody just needs to come around to our way of thinking. See, there's a level of humility that needs to be practiced as we read the scriptures. One that doesn't come with presuppositions. One that is not reading things into the text. But one that trusts the Holy Spirit to lead and guide. He is the one that illuminates the scriptures. And this is the heart of Paul in this prayer concerning knowledge. His desire is for them to be so immersed in the truth of Christ that the false teachers won't have a foothold, that they won't be able to break in because if they're being filled with the knowledge of his will, they would walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. They would walk. And this leads me to my second point of what is truly pleasing to the Father. You know, the goal of understanding the will of God was so that the Colossians would be able to live one day at a time walking in a manner that would glorify and please God. You know, again, another danger that we can fall into as believers is where everything in our faith becomes head knowledge, where we're seeking these, quote-unquote, deeper truths, and then we become so obsessed with those that we forget that we're supposed to walk worthily, that we forget that we're supposed to live practically and live out these commands that we're studying. And we just get distracted uh, from living out these truths. So Paul's prayer is one to know God's will and then for them to have the power of the Spirit to accomplish his will. See, doctrine and ethics are inseparable to Paul. He he believes that right thinking leads to right conduct. If you know the right things, you're going to do what it asks you to do. That's uh, living your life in obedience to his will. Seeking what is pleasing to God. Now, obviously, we're not going to live up to that perfection that might be required, but we still live with the goal to seek to please the Father. You know, Hebrews 11 teaches us that. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. 
See, Paul wants our desires, he wants our affections to be for God and his will rather than our own. He is whom we must seek. And then he shows what a Christian walk, that one that would be worthy, looks like. So let's look at these things a little bit more in depth, beginning in verse 10. To walk in a worthy way before the Lord means that you will bear fruit in character and in conduct. Now, we want to make the connection to how the gospel bears fruit, uh, how it's effective in verse 6, as we talked about last week. So, so fruit is going to be tied to the gospel message. Fruit is going to be tied to our relationship with Christ. He is what brings that fruit. When we think about fruit, obviously you should think about Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. These are your measures, these are your metrics uh, of the fruit that should be evident in your life. And also when we think about bearing fruit, we think about how our lives resemble a tree, a metaphor that we see all over the Bible. Secondly, our life should be growing, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a relationship that's fostered. It's a relationship that's fed. We don't stagnate permanently at the point of being saved and just stay in that, but instead we press into the Father even more becoming a sponge, soaking up his truth in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Thirdly, it is gaining strength with power. What is strengthened here, I believe, is your faith. Our reliance on the Father strengthens us as we put our trust in him, and he gives us strength through the Spirit. This leads to, to perseverance in the faith, the endurance, the patience that is seen at the end of verse 11 which of course is marked with joy. You know, if you need patience, if you need persistence for something, chances are it's not gonna be something that's easy. Christian life isn't supposed to necessarily be easy. You're gonna be tested, you're gonna have trials, you're gonna have hardships that happen in your life. And again, it's marked with joy, not happiness. The outward sign of the inner grace from the Lord is joy. Joy flows from grace. They share the same common Greek root word. It's not a fake exuberance. It's not emotional based on happiness in the flesh. Joy comes from knowing and being known by God. It is Christ dwelling in you. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, joy is not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on people. Happiness is. Joy is the expression of Christ dwelling in us. So that's why even in difficulties, even in times of immense sorrow, even in times like today, a Christian can still have joy. They might not be happy. They might be angry, but they can still have joy because of Christ in us. And finally, walking worthily includes expressing gratitude to God. And this leads to the third thing that I want to see in our passage today why we walk worthily, or what God has done for us. And it stems in this expression of gratitude. It's found in the second part of verse 12 through verse 14. And there's three things that are expressed that should bring about our thanksgiving. The first is that we see that God has qualified you, you plural, so believers, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God qualifies us at the moment of conversion. 
whereas some of that possession might happen um, as we get to heaven. But we want to understand that, that God is the one that qualifies us. And we see the, the identity piece being referenced again in terms of saints, going back up to verse 2. Again, trying to continue to make these different connections and how Paul is using language to combat um, false teaching by putting proper identity into the people's minds of who they are in Christ. And of course, the connection to light. The second thing that we are thankful for is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. Again, this is done at conversion where we have died with Christ and we are born again into new creations. Satan no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer has control over us. Now, we could still sin, yes, but we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin is not our master. Jesus is. And as we walk in a manner that's worthy of that, we are thankful. The third thing to be thankful of is that he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And there are qualifiers at the end of this in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we see that there's this exchange from darkness to light, from from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. Um, Paul is showing also by using these two words side by side of redemption and forgiveness that a central feature of redemption is the forgiveness of sins. You know, Webster back in the 1800s, he defines forgiveness as the act of pardoning an offender by which he is considered and treated as not guilty. It is the remission of a debt, fine, or penalty. And redemption is the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners, the act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. And then he goes on and he says, theologically, it is the purchase of God's favor by the death and suffering of Christ, the ransom or deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalties of God's violated law by the atonement of Christ. I love that dictionary. I love that he was so, just so free to be able to define words the way that God intended them to be defined. Now it's believed that Paul is explaining all of this because the false teachers would re- redefine the terms of redemption and forgiveness in terms of what you were redeemed from. The Gnostics would teach that redemption is from fate. Fate is a Greek philosophy. Notice how we can flippantly treat the will of God and have it seem more like fate. You see the enemy's work to subtly twist definitions, to subtly twist words and phrases, even within the church, even if we have all of the right intentions. I can say everything right, I don't, but I can say everything right, but how you perceive it, how you hear it is a different thing as well. And the way that we use words, the way that we explain things might seem right in our heads and it's actually pretty accurate. But for somebody who's hurting that you don't know, you might have just put a stumbling block in their path. We have to unpack a little bit more of how we're using some of these terms. Trying to understand one another, trying to be on the same page because the enemy wants nothing more to come in and create divisions. Because if we're isolated, if we're alone, 
It's easy. But if we're unified and we're together under the banner of Christ, we can move mountains. We can change communities. We can impact people with a gospel message. The enemy is afraid of that. Paul is stressing for us to press into the Father, to know his will, to walk in a way that is worthy, a, w- a way that is thankful for what Christ has done for us. And we don't want to miss the heart that he has because it is marked with joy because he is worthy of our praise and glory. Today, as we close our message time, we're going to step into a time of communion. I'll ask the gentleman to go to the back. But I want us to search our own hearts and minds for the thoughts of thanksgiving, for the redemption that we have received through the blood of Christ, to appreciate the will of God to send his son to die in our place, redeeming us from the bondage of sin, forgiving us the debt that we owed because Christ paid for it all on the cross. I'd like you just to spend a a few moments um, examining your hearts and minds, praising the Father. In a little bit, I will read some scripture over us.